If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Dr. Raj's Sleep Board Review. And um, this is going to be high-yield stuff for your pulmonary boards. And where did we leave off last time was talking about obstructive sleep apnea, which is going to be one of the highest-yield topics. And we kind of left off when we started talking about treatments. And what's going to be our our role for today, we're going to finish off sleep disordered breathing, we're going to start talking about insomnia, another very hot topic. So when we talk about treatment, you know what, I say we just go for some kind of question. So you know what, Uh, we'll play the game where you get somebody to pick the first person, then you pick the next answer and so forth and so on. We have a 54 year old uh, gentleman has a home sleep apnea test because they're snoring, patient's obese, there's some sleepiness. And we're gonna, there's a diagram up here, uh, a PSG that shows a two-minute compressed epoch. And supposedly, this two-minute compressed epoch is showing what is representative of the entire home sleep study. And when I'm looking at this, I definitely see the flow and the effort. The flow is in red, and the effort is going to be in blue. And it looks like there are times where, man, there is definitely going to be some effort for what it means. You could look at the blue. And there's no flow, effort and no flow. All right. Which of the following is most appropriate next step? Assuming the entire sleep study, just home sleep study looks just like this, where there's tons of episodes where there's effort and no flow. So let's just start off with Anakit. Why don't you start off on this one? What do you feel is going to be the right answer? Then we'll pass it on from there. So it seems like since there's effort but no flow and there's desaturations on the top one seems like yeah. this is all obstructive sleep apnea based on all of the numbers so i would probably just do auto titrating cpap no and, and i have to say that's probably what i would choose myself but choice a says do an in-lab split study hey when we talk about doing a home sleep study that this is going to be someone we have a high pretest probability if you have a low pretest probability maybe i would have started off with an in-lab study but i don't think we need to go back and recreate the wheel this patient probably has some moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea so i wouldn't do a split night and bring them back in the lab multiple sleep latency tests I mean that's more of something we think about for hypersomnias per se and that's not what we're thinking about here 
Not that obstructive sleep apnea can cause hypersomnia, but you got to treat what you see. Reassurance, that's choice D. That sounds kind of like a mean thing. If this is representative of the entire study, he has moderate, severe obstructive sleep apnea. You want to treat it. So this is kind of like the peanut butter and jelly of practical sleep medicine, what you'll see on your pulmonary boards. You have a home sleep study that shows probably severe OSA, go right to an auto titrating uh, CPAP. So Annika, you are spot on. Good for you. That's what we just talked about. And let's talk about treatments. So when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, of course, default is do some lifestyle modifications, easier said than done, lose the weight, avoid things like alcohol, sedatives, opioids if possible, things that could possibly make the obstructive sleep apnea worse. Of course, try to avoid sleeping in a supine position because of the gravity effect of that tongue just falling back into the airway. And, you know, there are many things that we've used for positional obstructive sleep apnea, starting from tennis balls stitched to the back of your shirt, all the way to many different devices you strap around your entire waist, or even more complex devices that actually will wake you up when you're sleeping based upon your position. The mainstay therapy for OSA is always going to be non-invasive positive airway pressure. Of course, CPAP, if it's going to be obstructive sleep apnea, something very straightforward, start with CPAP. A bi-level device, there are many different bi-level devices. It could be BiPAP, two different pressures. It could be called something called ASV, which is a bi-level device. But the inspiratory pressures are going to be this adaptive servo ventilation. Or another bi-level device could be called AVAPS, which is a volume-assured pressure support, where this is going to be the inspiratory breast, but the expiratory is kind of like PEEP, positive expiratory pressure. So let's jump into this even more and what they're going to ask you on your board exams. So if other therapies, because no one should be surprised at the title of this slide, is that not everyone tolerates PAP. So I would say things I would know for your boards would include an oral appliance, like a mandibular advancement device, especially uh, there are definitely candidates who would be a good candidate for an oral appliance. Surgery is a very broad term. I put down some of the traditional surgeries like a U-triple-P, a uvulopalentopharyngeoplasty. I put the Inspire device which God forbid is a tongue stimulating device that you implant. And there's very specific criteria to who gets uh, to use a brand name inspired device. Tracheostomy, I mean, I think every board review book I've ever seen has talked about a tracheostomy. Not very practical and I wish it upon no one, but of course it bypasses the obstruction. I'll say that much. And people always ask me, where are these pictures on the top right? Why is there bandages on this person's nose? It was a device called ProVent that got discontinued in 2020, and therefore it's not really asked on anyone's board exam anymore. But I want to talk about surgery. In the olden days, we said, hey, just get that U-triple-P and you'll be okay. But surgery is very tailored. And how do we know who's going to be a good candidate for surgery? In broad strokes, it's probably individuals that don't tolerate non-invasive positive airway pressure, individuals that don't tolerate any type of mandibular advancement or dental appliance of some kind. And surgery is very tailored. And we do this based upon two broad ways. In the olden days, we would think about non-invasive ways to do things. Is there certain imaging like an MRI or CT? But nowadays, we do a somewhat invasive way to figure out what's the perfect surgery for that individual. So how do we do it invasively? Well, we'll put the ENT docs, we'll actually put a fiber optic laryngoscope down the nose, and they would actually, you know, in the olden days, when the patient's awake, they'll look 
at the opening of the airway. Here's the epiglottis, here's the cords. You know, do a Mueller's maneuver where it's kind of like, and those of you listening could pinch your nose and take a breath in, like, and you feel that collapse of the upper airway. It's called a Mueller's maneuver. It's kind of opposite of the Valsalva maneuver where you're breathing out. Mueller's maneuver, you're breathing in. And you look for the collapse. But the problem is the patient's awake when you do this. So if you want to mimic what happens when you're sleeping, they do something called DICE, drug-induced sleep endoscopy. So literally, they knock you out using medications like amidazolam, like a propofol. And when you're sleeping, they put that scope right through that nose again and look at the collapse. So drug-induced sleep endoscopy and then they do something called vote. And vote is kind of like my way of kind of like looking at what type of collapse is happening. If the vellum is going to be involved, the vellum is kind of like the soft palate, well, maybe you might be a candidate for some kind of modified UPPP. If you have more of a lateral wall collapse, maybe a tonsillectomy would be something to consider. If it's going to be somewhere where you see an anterior-posterior collapse, only if it's anterior-posterior, those are going to be the candidates for an Inspire device. And on top of that, there's a BMI cutoff for the Inspire device. It should be less than 32 for at least our board exams. I know that the company wants to push it up to like 35. And, you know, the epiglottis, I don't see many epiglottectomies, maybe a partial in some kinds, but that stands for the E. So when we talk about who's a surgical candidate, it's not one surgery fits all. There's really, uh, it's more to it now where we do in most patients a drug-induced sleep endoscopy to really tailor the surgery to that patient. So talking more about uh, therapies, Anakit, who do you want to uh, pick for this one? The Fong's not here, so Chinoy. Okay, Chinoy, here's a, here's a slam dunk for you, buddy. An oral appliance would be most appropriate uh, for use in which of the following conditions? Obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, mild to moderate OSA, central sleep apnea, severe OSA. Uh, B. Yeah, you know I mean? I think when we talk about oral devices, you definitely don't use it for something that has central sleep apnea. I mean, they're not even breathing in most cases. And severe OSA wouldn't be the ones I would think about when I want to do a dental appliance. Obesity, hypoventilation, once again, hypoventilating, thinking about, you know, uh, elevated CO2 levels. So nowadays, yes, mild to moderate OSA. And I also want to say that when you use an uh, oral appliance, it reduces the blood pressure. It helps out with daytime sleepiness. And also, it's interesting that when it comes time to compliance, compliance to an oral device is very similar to CPAP when we talk about sticking to their therapies. But it's a great question to think about on board exams is offering a oral appliance for mild to moderate. Uh, Chinoy, uh, do you want to do another one or would you like to pass it on? Serena. Serena. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Hey, I, you know, I didn't talk to you last time. I actually kind of missed you a little bit. Are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. All right. So, Serena, uh, I gave you a tough one. Are you going to be okay with that? Sure. Which of the following measures have been shown to enhance PAP adherence? And they're going to ask you this on your palm boards coming up. So, you got a lot of choices there, Serena. Is it A, bi-level uh, positive airway pressure, B, CPAP with this expiratory pressure relief. So when they're breathing out, they, it kind of softens the pressure a little to make it easier to tolerate the CPAP. Is mm -hmm. it C, using a ramping mechanism where you start off with a low pressure and work your way up to a target? D, hidden humidifier so the mouth doesn't get all dry? E, use of a nasal mask interface compared to just here's a full face mask, you know? F, maybe some behavioral, supportive, educational intervention. That's always tempting. 
Gee, uh, maybe I, a, an EF combo. So I think if I remember correctly, D is correct. And then like behavioral modification, like physician uh, frequent follow-ups are one of them. Yeah. So, so I was getting- what letter are you choosing then? I, I don't see that choice. I know. I'm going to go with <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. I don't know if nasal is better than oral nasal, though. So I'm going to go with D. All right. I love that. I love that. So this is going to be the biggest trick on the boards right here. The answer really is G isn't good. The answer is going to be that nasal mask versus also including some of that behavioral support. So, Serena, I'm going to show you some of the evidence behind this. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So just so people can see, this is a nasal pillow. This is a nasal mask, full face mask. If the heated humidifier is always a tempting choice, and there is in the olden days, heated humidifier, that improves compliance. And if you do use it, of course, distilled water is the choice, is the water of choice. But there is new evidence out there I wanted to talk about in regards to compliance. But Serena, since I have you here, let me ask you one more before we move on. Here's another uh, question. When we talk about autopap, you know, many people are just put on autopap nowadays where it's self-adjust the pressure. Which of the following is a benefit of using autopap versus a straight CPAP where it's like one set pressure, like a pressure of 10 centimeters of water? What's, which is the benefit? Is it A, autopap reduces the AHI better? B, is it less negative impact on the sleep architecture? So it's, you know, your REM and non-REM and stages stay the same. Is it C, you get better oxygenation? Or D, Autopap ha uh, gives you lower mean airway pressures. Which one sounds correct, Serena? I think it's D, lower mean airway pressure. Dude, that's the 100% correct answer is that, hey, if Autopap really reduced the HI better or gave you better oxygenation, or it didn't mess with your sleep architecture, we'll all be using AutoPAP. I think we use it quite frequently because of the fact that, you know, we know that when you're sleeping and you have sleep apnea, position affects it. Some of your lifestyle choices, like drinking alcohol, affects your obstructive apneas. Getting weight loss affects your apneas. So, of course, we use AutoPAP to be more convenient, but the truth is, you're right, it lowers the mean airway pressure. So, let me give you some bottom lines for CPAP and OSA for your boards, okay? So when you talk about adherence, so using CPAP early, your adherence to CPAP early really establishes long-term use patterns. So that's why we make such a big deal about getting patients to adhere to their CPAP earlier in their course. And one thing that's very interesting is the second bullet point. There's really no difference in CPAP adherence, whether you have mild OSA comparison to moderate severe. So we used to think that, oh, mild wouldn't use it or moderate severe would use it. There is no difference when in regards to severity. So when we talk about adherence for all the choices I gave you, when we talk about adherence for behavioral, supportive, and educational, here's the data that behavioral interventions improves usage 1.2 hours, which is pretty impressive, you know? Supportive interventions like phone calls, inquiries, the computer improves it 0.7 hours. Education, watching a video, you know, uh, improves it 0.6 hours. So yes, these definitely will improve adherence. Interface type. So when we talk about you, a comparison of the nasal interface with the oral interface, that there's definitely improvement in adherence using any type of nasal device, whether it's the pillows or just over the nose, compared to the full face mask. And that's very important. But there was no difference in adherence between intranasal and just over the mask. So the pillows versus nasal itself, there was no difference. So this is something that most of the time when you see us, you know, this is all based upon meta-analysis that most people, most of the time, will try to offer a nasal mask. 
Hypnotics. There was data about using Lunesta brand name, uh, giving it initially when they start using their CPAP, three milligrams for 14 days. It improved adherence, you know what I mean? And this sustained uh, for even after six months in certain studies. It's not that it's FDA approved for this, but it was very interesting. It improved adherence. Heated humidifiers, no improvement in PAP adherence, but we always, always recommend heated humidification because it reduces the side effects of having that really, really dry mouth. And other things I wanted to mention about the clinical outcomes when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, that the optimal usage of CPAP really depends on the outcome in question. So I know we always memorize OSA, you have hypertension, you use the CPAP. So CPAP on hypertension in 2019, if you're using CPAP, it showed a reduction uh, in the 24-hour mean blood pressure of 2.6 millimeters of mercury. That's what you're getting on a meta-analysis by using CPAP and you have hypertension. But the lowering of the blood pressure was the greatest in those who had excessive daytime sleepiness. Now, I'm going to say this a thousand times. Most of the best data when it comes to CPAP in, are people who had the sex of daytime sleepiness and those who had refractory hypertension. So you're going to ask me, what does it mean to be refractory compared to resistant? Refractory hypertension is worse than resistant. It's like being on five medications instead of three, and you're, it's really tough. So you get the best bang for your buck if you have excessive daytime sleepiness and you have refractory hypertension. And in non-sleepy patients who have OSA, the effect of CPAP prescription really remains unclear. So what about this? Let's talk about some of the other clinical outcomes. In non-sleepy adults with moderate to severe OSA, CPAP does not prevent primary or secondary cardiovascular events as used in randomized controlled trials. And of course, in these trials, unfortunately, the patients didn't really use the CPAP to begin with. It was less than four hours, but it's very important to show that. And in the cardiovascular inpatient population, people with heart failure admitted arrhythmias, MI, and have obstructive sleep apnea, CPAP initiation and compliance may decrease their readmission rates. And that's why we commonly get these consults for the inpatients uh, before they get discharged to home. And there's limited and conflicting data regarding mild OSA and cardiovascular outcomes. And, and that's why it's very important that, you know, I mean, when we think about these patients that were sent to us, when we have mild OSA, who have no daytime sleepiness, what are we really changing their overall outcome? So other things I wanted to mention, CPAP is not associated with weight loss. CPAP is associated with reduction in mortical vehicle accidents. And it really, it's a hit and miss in regards to results of diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and metabolic syndrome about using CPAP and OSA. So what are going to be some of the strong recommendations, the bottom line, to treat OSA in adults? Number one is use PAP to treat OSA with excessive daytime sleepiness. Use either CPAP or AutoPAP for initiation of therapy. Implement educational interventions with PAP initiation. We talked about that. It improves compliance. Use PAP to treat sleep-related quality of life or core morbid hypertension because there was actually some data for that hypertension, like I mentioned. And of course, implement behavioral or any type of guided interventions during the initial PAP period. So with that being said, that was some of the guidelines of the AASM for 
talking about CPAP initiation, let's talk about bi-level devices. So what are they? It's BiPAP plus or minus ST, which is spontaneous in time, AVAPs and ASV. These are all bi-level devices. So Serena, who do you want to do this one? This is a toughie. I guess we'll go down the list, Chris. Chris is really going to like this one. I just had Chris in clinic the other day. 72-year-old man with hypercapnic COPD has started using uh, BiPAP in the spontaneous and time mode during sleep. He reports feeling as if his device is breathing for him before he's ready to breathe in. So he's just getting another breath right away. He also reports uh, more frequent awakenings during sleep since starting his use of the device. Which of the following changes to the patient's BiPAP settings would be most likely to improve his dyssynchrony? So choice A, increased inspiratory time. Choice B, lengthening the rise time. C, increase the cycle sensitivity. D, increase the trigger sensitivity. Now, I got to tell you, this is going to be 100% on the pulmonary board exams. This is, the, this is your jam, talking about synchrony with ventilations. Chris, take it away, buddy. Okay. I think um, his mic is not working, right. That's why he just texted. <laughs> and he says D uh, on the chat. D. So when we talk about non-invasive ventilation or invasive ventilation, you know, have, being synchronous with the ventilator is so important. And I really want to talk about, you know, what I mean, what I call the three T's, the trigger, it's going to be the target, and it's going to be the termination, which is going to be the cycling. And when we talk about what's happening over here, it's kind of like in this part of the, an- the question where he's getting a breath and he's not even ready to get a breath. It's coming in too quick. So when we talk about someone who has COPD, I, I pretty much wouldn't increase the inspiratory time because you want to give him more time to blow out lengthening the rise time, that means it's going to take longer to get to that inspiratory breath. I probably wouldn't want to do that in someone with COPD. And he doesn't look like he has any trouble triggering the breath. He definitely is getting triggering it maybe even too much. So the key thing over here is going to be the cycling. What turns the breath off? And I really want to spend some time with this. So the answer here is actually C as in cat, but this is going to be something that they're going to test you, whether it's a palm board or a sleep board, invasive or non-invasive. Let's talk about ventilator dyssynchrony. So when we talk about uh, when someone comes with me with a non-invasive, I'm looking at a kind of like a pressure control type waveform. So this is going to be an individual where they're getting the pressure is increasing then they exhale, then it's increasing all the way down and exhaling. This is your end expiratory pressure. This is your inspiratory pressure. This is your pressure support. So let's talk about the different parts of it. So this is the BiPAP waveform. And as I said, what are going to be things that we could control to help one of my patients be more in synchronous with their non-invasive? So triggering sensitivity, just like an invasive event, could be one of two things. It could be pressure triggered or flow triggered. And this is what needs to, the patient needs to do to get that preset pressure. Uh, when they trigger and they get the breath on inspiration, two things I can manipulate, the rise time and the inspiratory time. So the rise time is how long it takes to get to that top pressure. And the quicker the rise time, the sooner you get to this pressure versus the inspiratory time is how long do they stay in this pressure. And cycling turns off the ventilator from inspiration so that he get another breath. How does it cycle? So remember for synchrony, the trigger, rise time, inspiratory time, and the cycle sensitivity. So when we talk about that rise time, here's going to be the baseline over here. 
If I actually uh, have two clinical scenarios, someone has overlap syndrome like COPD. So what happens in the black dash is that you actually want to decrease the rise time so it gets up there quicker, more time for expiration. Versus obesity hypoventilation syndrome, you could take your sweet time going up to have a longer rise time to open up the alveoli more. Inspiratory time in the yellow, well, if you have obesity hypoventilation syndrome, spend a lot of time in inspiration to open up the alveoli. But if you have COPD overlap, it's in the, uh, this area, this greenish right here, you want to shorten it to give more time on expiration. So these are things that I can manipulate in a patient when they're on a bi-level device. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here is a cycling. So what cycles off a of breath? This is the same thing when you folks are in the ICU, you put someone on pressure support mode. What cycles off pressure support? It's going to be the inspiratory flow. So here, this is going to be your inspiratory flow right here. If I could find my little arrow. And what happens is, is that when you have 40% of the breath cycled uh, left, it cycles off. 25% of the breath over here, then it cycles off. 10% of the breath left, then it cycles off. So what's happening in this gentleman is that he is cycling. He's getting another breath. It's cycling off before he's ready for the next one. So you want to change his cycle sensitivity. So the higher the number, meaning that it's going to cycle off sooner, the lower the number, it's going to cycle off later. So the cycle percent of 10% means there's 10% left in the inspiratory breath. Then it will cycle off, and then you could get another breath in. So this is going to be things we can manipulate in a non-invasive, but you use the same things when you use invasive mechanical ventilation. This is AVAPS, which is kind of like a analogy to pressure-regulated volume control when you talk about, you know, someone who's on an invasive mechanical ventilator. Here, I choose a volume. And that's going to be, and the inspiratory pressures are going to vary to guarantee that volume. So what are we showing here is that I could pick, you know, a pressure support min, a pressure support max. And if I choose a volume such as 100 uh, mLs, the pressures are always going to vary to guarantee I get that volume. Very similar to pressure regulated volume controlled when we talk about um, mechan invasive mechanical ventilation. And of course, PEEP uh, is the end expiratory pressure and there also could be auto adjusted too. And when I think about AVAPs, people with things like obesity, hypoventilation syndrome. ASV, really niche when we talk about uh, people who have central sleep apnea. Uh, ASV, the ASV part is the inspiratory part of this bi-level, and it helps regulate the CO2. AVAPs will blow off the CO2. ASV will help regulate the CO2 so there won't be any gross shifts. So what does ASV basically do? It senses um, the volumes being blown off by the patient. And if there are big volumes, they'll give you smaller pressures. If there are less volume, they give you big pressures. And what it wants to do is stabilize the CO2. I wouldn't use ASV to blow off the CO2, but to stabilize it so you won't get these big shifts in hyperpneas and hypopneas. So with that being said, it kind of leads us to central sleep apnea. 
So anyone can just jump in, Chris, if you want to text someone who you want to do next, uh, that'd be great. So we have a 36-year-old gentleman uh, without significant past medical history is referred for daytime symptoms of fragmented sleep, sleep maintenance insomnia, and daytime sleepiness. His wife has observed that the patient has apneas throughout the night, but denies snoring. The patient's sleep disruption and observed sleep disorder breathing occur more during the first half of the night and improve as the night progresses. Symptoms are not positional and are not associated with awakenings related to shortness of breath. He denies any cardiac disease, chest pain, or other chronic pain syndromes. There is no restless leg syndrome symptoms, no depression, and has no history of stroke or other neurological diseases. He also denies dyspnea on exertion or lower extremity edema. He's on no meds, no allergies, social history. He lives in a Midwestern city around 1,000 feet elevation, 300 meters and is a non-smoker, BMI is 24, vitals are normal, physical exam is within normal limits, normal spirometry, echo is good, ECG is good, urine tox is negative, ABG on room air, pH is 7.45, as CO2 it's a little bit low at 35, PO2 of 100, bicarb is normal. They do a split night PSG was performed and characteristic sleep disordered uh, breathing was seen here in these epochs. So they showed a kind of a compressed two-minute uh, epoch, compressed two-minute epoch where this patient's in N2 sleep. And if you're looking at the pressure and flow, if I'm looking at this correctly, on the effort, chest and abdomen, there's no effort and there's no flow. No effort, no flow, no effort, no flow, no effort, no flow. So with that being said, oh, and then they put him on a CPAP titration because that's what they wanted to do after they saw this. Still in N2 sleep, they put him on CPAP, and wow, it looks exactly like the previous picture where this patient is now on CPAP. No effort, no flow, no effort, no flow, no effort, no flow, no effort, no flow. Here are going to be the baseline characteristics uh, before they put him on the PAP titration. HI baseline was 50, PAP titration now is 32. Obstructive apnea index at baseline was 5, CPAP is 0. Central apnea index is 40 at the baseline, 25 on the CPAP titration. The oxygenator in baseline was 85 on CPAP titration. It was 89. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? Who's up for this one? Is it A, central sleep apnea caused by high altitude? B, central sleep apnea by Sheen Stokes? C, primary central? Or D, treatment emergent central sleep apnea? I'll say primary central sleep apnea. Har, thanks for just like taking one for the team. You are awesome as always. And you are 100% correct. Why is it not A? I mean, the altitude, right? We don't usually don't see central sleep apnea at 1,000 feet. Usually it's going to be 6,000 to 8,000 feet. Uh, this is not going to be Sheen Stokes respiration based on clinical, sure, but based on the cycle length, based upon different characteristics of not having certain past medical history. This is not Sheen Stokes. Treatment emergent centrals, patient had these central apneas at baseline. So I wouldn't say these are treatment emergent centrals. This is going to be primary central sleep apnea. And of course, this is something where we see a lot of central sleep apnea in non-REM sleep. We don't see a lot of central sleep apnea in REM sleep, which is one of the buzzwords why they put N2 over here. But we're going to talk more about central sleep apnea. Uh, Sahar, would you mind doing this one, dude? I'm going to give you this one. Does it sound fair? 
Sure. You want me to read it or are you reading? Oh, you're so sweet. I'll read it for you. It's cool, man. (laughs) 47-year-old corporate executive without significant past medical history has just undergone a complete physical and has been found to be in excellent health and is referred for PSG based upon complaints of fatigue, witness apneas during sleep. He takes no regular medications. A summary of the first portion of the PSG are shown, and it says a total sleep time of 178 minutes and 124% and 274 and 3, 2% and no REM sleep. The HI is 38.6. Obstructive index is nothing at 3.7. Central index is elevated at 25.8. Uh, hypotony index is 9.1. The lowest O2 sat is 79. And PLM is 0.8, which is not significant. So a trial of CPAP was started based upon these findings between uh, 5 to 15 centimeters of water, so kind of an auto PAP, during the later half of the night is unsuccessful, surprise, surprise, at improving the shown abnormalities. Which of the following is true with regard to this patient's most likely diagnosis? So this is a tough one, uh, Sahar. So is the answer going to be this disorder is likely to worsen during REM sleep? Is the by level pressure spontaneous mode is an effective option? Is it C, use of low dose hypnotics is likely to exacerbate disease? Or D, addition of supplemental oxygen during sleep may decrease the frequency of events? What do you feel, Sahar? So we know centrals actually get better during REM because of the increased apnea threshold. So it's not a bilevel. Boom, 100%, dude. You want bilevel to be in a spontaneous time mode, not just spontaneous because you want that backup rate. Dude, you know, the more you talk, the more you're like Michael Jordan (laughs) dunked a ball in the basket. Like I see your your figure right here dunking the ball. There you go. All right. And then we know Lunessa can actually improve it here. And so it's not C. Um, and also, let me interrupt you, Sahar. People with central sleep apnea, when you have those multiple arousals, mm-hmm. you off the CO2 when you wake up, causing the central apnea. So by using hypnotic in theory, you will prevent all those arousals, but no hypnotic is FDA approved to right. sleep yeah. apnea. Just to let it sure. Yeah, no, it's not FDA, but it does help them. Uh, and yeah. then we know that supplemental oxygen is obviously not like FDA approved and all that, but it has been shown to reduce central sleep apnea. So um, oxygen can be made actually help this patient. Very good. And I'll just caveat that by saying that it's not wrong to try the CPAP first, and you are 100% correct. If you don't tolerate the CPAP, which is not surprising, why do we give CPAP first? Because maybe there are some obstructives in there, we just kind of misscored. But you could use oxygen. Remember, in this case, this patient's oxygen was on the lower side, and it stabilizes the oxygen so you don't get those big shifts in having these big hyperpneas than apneas, you know? So yes, of the choices here, this is going to be one where we consider adding oxygen to someone who doesn't respond to CPAP who has central sleep apnea. So let's just, let's just do this one together. It's an easy one. I know you're going to get it. 65-year-old obese male presents for evaluation of daytime fatigue and loud snoring. He reports difficulty in maintaining sleep during the night uh, with the need to urinate on awakening. History of diabetes and hypertension on review of system. He has orthopnea. There's an S3, which is an early diastolic murmur of fluid overload. He has lower extremity edema, normal neurological exam. They do an in-lab PSG. And I think everyone listening or can see what I see. Here's going to be the effort, no effort, no flow, no effort, no flow. But look at the shape. Sahar, if you had to describe the shape, what are my two favorite words? 
crescendo and decrescendo. You say a little more like crescendo, decrescendo. So I agree. Based on this tracing, which of the following tests would be most appropriate to perform next? Uh, are they getting at the ES? Uh, 45% ES? <laughs> getting an echo? <laughs> <laughs> so would you do an, an MRI of the brain in here? Would that be the right answer? Choice A? No, I mean, if this was a, you know, 18 month old, you know, coming in with that, maybe, but I'm not worried about Bacchiari at somebody who's like 60 or 90, you know. Yeah, 60. I like the way we were, I mean, we were on the same page. If this is someone a little bit older, not just 18 months, you know what I mean? And they suddenly have central sleep apnea. Because remember, in younger folks, I'm not really as concerned for central sleep apnea, but mm -hmm. in you, yes. And what type of uh, Chiari formation would you have? Which type to get, uh, uh, to give you these central sleep apnea? Type two, I think. It would be type one. One, right? one. Remember, that's going to be that tonsillar herniation of the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. Type two gives you the spina bifida, remember? Mm, right, right, yeah. Yep. And then ASV, does that sound like a good idea for someone with heart failure? We don't know his baseline EF, so. Yeah. yeah, so I would be careful just throwing some ASV on there. Only if you didn't like the patient, do a tilt table. <laughs> Sounds horrendous. Basal <laughs> vagal syncope. Going to the cath lab, they may need that eventually to figure out what's going on, but I wouldn't do that right away. You definitely would get an echo. So outstanding. Here, the answer here is going to be B. And there is, is a type 1 carry malformation, tonsillar herniation right there. And last but not least, it's a, a two-parter, Sahar. You kind of led yourself to this. Oh, wait, I'm standing on this one too? Okay. <laughs> Based on the previous PSG tracing, which statement is most correct regarding this patient's congestive heart failure? Is it A, auction therapy will improve long-term survival? How's that sound? No. no I haven't yeah, that's not what oxygen does. Is it B, the patient has increased risk of mortality? Regarding patient congestive heart failure. Uh, okay, this is... Does that sound tempting? Yeah, it's plausible. Okay, it's possible. <laughs> How about in central sleep apnea? She, so does the patient have a decreased chemoreceptor responsiveness? No, it's an no. increased receptor responsiveness. So they really kind of like overshoot or undershoot. So they're too sensitive. So... All right, right. It's, it's C is wrong. And then D, we already know they're hypocarbic uh, during daytime. Uh, so yeah, so C is wrong because yeah. of that. It's an it's increased chemoreceptor. And D, it would actually have a lower CO2 during the daytime and at night sometimes. So by default, I think the take-home message mm -hmm. is you have Sheen-Stokes respiration. That is associated with mortality in these patients. So very important to know these things. Um, okay, sorry to interrupt, but um, is the, yeah. am I remembering this correctly? Like if this, because you know how we say the cycle time more than 40 is like, um, more concerning does that if there are like more let's like say 60 or something it does, is that associated with mortality as well if there's cycle time amazing so definitely it's associated with two things number one you know probably the ejection fraction itself and number okay. two it's going to be mortality and it's going to be inversely related so you know I mean the longer the cycle length probably the worst the ef and worse the mortality so it's inversely related okay longer the cycle length so let's talk about in general, before we go on to everyone's favorite obesity hypoventilation, let's talk about how do I think about central sleep apnea? I classify them as hypercapnic and hypocapnic. What will make you hypercapnic during the day? A lot of these neuromuscular disorders such as ALS, myasthenia gravis, muscular dystrophy, chronic opioid use, everyone. And, you know, when we talk about opioids, they work on those mu receptors in what we call this pre-Butzinger complex, which is one of those buzzwords for our boards. And remember, they have 
a breathing pattern that's called biots respiration. It's a type of central sleep apnea. What a surprise, it occurs mainly in non-REM sleep. Important risk factors for getting opioid-induced central sleep apnea is the dose. How much of these morphine equivalents are you getting? And it's the lower BMI, the lower BMI that puts you at a higher risk. How do I treat it? You know, CPAP may reduce DHI, but it's frequently ineffective. Therefore, if the patient is actually hypoventilating, hypoventilating, I definitely would consider BiPAP with an S and a T to make sure there's a timed rate when they're not uh, breathing. And if they are eucapnic or uh, hypocapnic with a low CO2, well, what causes this? We had a vignette of primary central sleep apnea, which is very rare. There is also Sheen-Stokes respirations, which we see in these heart failure patients. We had a question of that. High altitude, think about at the 6,000 or 8,000 feet. And of course, there's something called treatment emergent central sleep apnea. It's called treatment emergent because we can get these central apneas from a trach, from a dental device, not just from using CPAP. And I'll do this one for the team because I want to get through a lot more questions. What is the physiology behind CPAP-induced central sleep apnea? You know, the key thing here is that it's gonna be all of the above, meaning that there's gonna be a high loop gain. And there's gonna be something called a Herring-Brower reflex. And yes, it's gonna be about not being adapted to your CPAP. So everyone's gonna ask me, what are you talking about this loop gain and Herring-Brower reflex? So number one, when we talk about this Herring-Brower reflex, it just means that in your brainstem, you're going to have something called the apneustic center. It always makes you take a breath in, whether you like it or not. So what shuts off you from always breathing in? Well, you're going to have these stretch receptors in the airways. Say, stop breathing in. And when they have too much air in the airways, there is actually a reflex called the Herring-Brower reflex that tells you to stop taking a breath in. So if you're giving you all this positive airway pressure, the airways are going to be distended. It's going to continue to signal this reflex to make you stop breathing. Loop gain, everyone, is basically, you know, when you have these old school air conditioners that where you set it for a certain temperature, like 70 degrees, but what happens, it cools it down to 50, then you're freezing, then it shuts it off until it's like 90 degrees. That's called a high loop gain. It, it overs and undershoots quite a bit. And that's what we see when we talk about central sleep apnea. And of course, maladaption means I slap a pap on your face, you're panicking and you start breathing heavily and you just blow off all the CO2 and you stop breathing. So that what induces at least a CPAP induced central sleep apnea. And I'll just say of treatment emergent centrals, it happens in five to 15% of patients with OSA. And if you just keep them on CPAP and cross your fingers, it solves it 85% of the time. If it doesn't, we may consider a trial of ASV. And, you know, and why is, and it's important to realize that treatment emergent centrals can also happen from dental devices and surgery and even a trach sometimes. And treatment for central sleep apnea is not standardized. Always, always, always treat the underlying cause. And, you know, you, there are non-invasive positive airway things we can do. We talked about trying CPAP plus or minus oxygen if they don't respond to CPAP and they're hypoxic. You know, BiPAP with a backup rate in certain cases. ASV, but not, not, not for CHF based upon the mortality data that came out in, uh, in trials. And things that we don't use, we don't give them CO2 to help stabilize the CO2. That sounds like a bad idea. We do use nocturnal oxygen. 
There are mechanical devices like a phrenic nerve stimulator, particularly for people with Sheen-Stokes respiration, if they're not a candidate for non-invasive, and we do want to treat them. And medications, azitazolamide, if you're in high altitude and you carry a diagnosis of OSA, you could add on azitazolamide uh, to, to help out if they're developing central sleep apnea. And last but not least for centrals, there's something called uh, hypoventilation syndromes. The classic one is congenital central alveolar hypoventilation syndrome. It's uh, something where the key thing to remember is that it can happen at a very, very young age, like talking about diagnosis in the first year of life, but it also can occur later in age also, even though it's not common to see, even not as common when you're older in life. There could sometimes be a trigger when you're older in age, such as anesthesia, that can cause you to have this. To diagnose it, you have to actually identify this gene called the FOX2B gene to help make the diagnosis. And now let's talk about OHS and hypercapnia, and then maybe we can make our way to some insomnia. So, Sahar, who do you want to pick for this one? This would be a very a, a nice one for someone else to do. Who else is listening? Whoever, is, whoever has not gone yet. I don't yeah, who hasn't gone yet? Defong. Oh, Defong's there? Okay, great. 63-year-old man with a BMI of 43 visits an outpatient sleep clinic with symptoms of daytime sleepiness and loud snoring that have developed over the last few years. He has not had any hospitalizations in the past year. His EPRA score is 11. Exam reveals that his neck circumference is 43 centimeters and he has trace bilateral pitot edema. He has normal muscle strength. Sleep testing demonstrates an AHI of 65 95% obstructive events with a mean O2 sat of 89. The use spirometry has a ratio of 80%, FB1 of 85%, FBC of 82. They do an arterial blood gas. The pH is 7.4. The PaCO2 is 54, 51. The PaO2 is 60. The bicarb is 30. What PAP modality should be recommended for the initial management of this patient? Is it a, CPAP, B, ASV, C, BiPAP in an ST mode, or D, uh, AVAPs, the FONG. Uh, so, yeah, I guess... Uh, wait, 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 <laughs> this, this, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> that was actually scary. That I'm was not, scary. Like, that was go. not even the FONG, dude. Dude, I'll go. Dr. Rod, I'll go. Okay. <laughs> Drew hasn't gone yet. He's sitting over here. Drew, what's no, going on, buddy? What, what, which one are you going to pick? Hey. I'm going to choose A. It's A. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Drew or Defong. Um, the right answer here is going to be A. Why did you pick A? So the key thing about this is talking about some of the phenotypes when we talk about OHS. So let's talk about that. So the answer is A. And I want to talk about some of the ATS guidelines of why the choice is going to be A. So I just kind of cut and paste this from the ATS guidelines that, you know, when we talk about uh, making the diagnosis and managing them. So in regards to testing the, you want to call it OHS, you got to rule out other things, making sure it's not COPD or neuromuscular disorder. Then you want to see if they're going to have elevated CO2. And I know it's not easy to get an ABG on everyone, but what they say is you have a high probability of having OHS. You can go for an arterial blood gas right away. If it's a low to intermediate probability, well, then you can look at the basic metabolic panel and look at the bicarb. If the bicarb is going to be low, then you have a, it has a very high negative predictive value. If the bicarb is elevated, more than 27, that entails a metabolic alkalosis, then you could go ahead and then check an arterial blood gas. For therapy, what does the ATS recommend? Is that if you have 
OHS and severe OSA than CPAP first-line therapy. That's why I put a little star right there. But if you're someone who has OHS with only a mild amount or no uh, OSA, then you could consider uh, using a bi-level device to blow off the CO2 in those cases. So I put this slide here to kind of summarize what I said, is that there are two main phenotypes. There are CPAP responders, those who have the severe OSA type. There are CPAP non-responders, those who have no OSA or only mild to begin with. And that's why with this patient having such a high AHI, you chose correctly the FONG. That was such a great job. And also, what makes someone hypoventilate? It's multifactorial, everyone, that even though as pulmonologists, we think of hypoxic respiratory failure and hypercapnia as two different things, they're really not. There's a lot of overlap. And you could be hypercapnic based upon lung compliance. And you can see that in obese patients or people who have emphysema, gas movement, resistance in the airways, you know, keeping the airways open. That's why we tend to use PEEP. And all these things come together and it causes you to have a respiratory load and you have to work harder to blow off the CO2. And based upon keeping it open, you can think of OSA, compliance, COPD, OHS, neuromuscular diseases. And if we really think it's OSA, keeping it open using CPAP first is one of the mentalities of how maybe it helps out the hypercapnia in those patients. And the key thing is to remember about, you know, when we talk about sleep, that the deeper stages of sleep you are, or including REM sleep here, that you have decreased chemoreceptor responsiveness. So your loop gain is very low over here. You don't respond to blow off CO2 as much when you're in REM sleep. And that's why we don't see central sleep apnea in REM sleep that much because of that decreased chemoreceptor responsiveness. So when we talk about treating these obesity hypoventilation syndromes, we spoke already about the role of CPAP. If there's someone who's gonna have no OSA or a very mild amount, you could use non-invasive. When you use non-invasive, you could just use BiPAP, bi-level PAP, no backup rate is needed. You know what I mean? Use the backup rate if you think there's gonna be some central apneas. And if that doesn't work, then you could use AVAPs, that volume assured pressure support, where you dial in the volume to guarantee they're gonna blow off the CO2. And before we talk about a little insomnia, I don't wanna say a few things about this, that COPD and non-invasive are always a hot topic. There truly is no evidence. That's why I put a red stoplight here. When we talk about stable COPD, COPD patients that are non-hypercapnic, there's no data. You know, in fact, there's a negative trial that shows if you put these people on BiPAP and they're not hypercapnic, you could get a negative outcome. So negative outcome in one trial, limited data, red light. We don't do that. End stage COPD, uh, yellow light, because there truly is no data in giving BiPAP for palliation. That just sounds kind of mean to begin with. Where do we really see these patients? Stable COPD that's hypercapnic. This is where we would probably send to a sleep up eventually to rule out overlap syndrome or to treat them with uh, maybe a bi-level device. And this is a classic one for your pulmonary boards when they talk about people who get discharged from the hospital in return in regards to readmission. They talk about this is an article from JAMA saying that, hey, if you're hypercapnic and hypoxic, we send you on non-invasive ventilation. It reduces the risk of readmission in these patients. And the number to treat here is six. So it's a very low number to treat. So with that being said, it's exactly one o'clock. We'll stop there. We'll pick up on our next session, talk about insomnia and hypersomnias. 
Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.